The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are honored that you join us each week for Conversations That Matter. That's why in 2020, we've tried to pivot to make sure that we are covering the things that need to be talked about, like the plague of racism in America and how the church is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We're also coming up on our 150th episode, which would not be possible without listeners like you engaging each week in the conversation. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendorf for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Bronwyn Lee. She is the editor of Propel Women, an organization centered on empowering women globally for leadership. She also is the author of a new book, Beyond Awkward Side Hugs. Uh, Bronwyn, thank you for joining the conversation. It is an honor to be with you. Thanks for having me. So you live in Northern California. However, your accent tells me you're more from, sounds like the the Chicago area. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the very, 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 very south side of Chicago, as in South Africa. (laughs) Yeah. So all all jokes aside, you're you're from South Africa. How How did you end up in California? Uh, I followed my husband. He had been a graduate student in Berkeley, um, at some point came back to South Africa, met and married me, and then decided to do a PhD. And so I did to do that stateside. So I newlywed, uh, made my way to the other side of the world following my husband. All right. Culturally speaking, apart from like things like apartheid, which we don't have time to really go into the depths of all that here, neither can we talk about America's history of racism here. But what culturally, just help us gauge culturally, what are the, the major differences between, you know, South Africa and Northern California? 
Oh my goodness. Uh, how much time do you have? Okay. So let's <laughs> say that I um, lived and worked in Tennessee for a little while before I met my husband. Um, and then later moved to California. And those were just two very different Americas. So it's hard, I would be hard pressed to, to draw general uh, dissimilarities or similarities because even within the States, there's such great variety. I think geographically, South Africa has a lot of similarities to California. Uh, certainly the area I came from in Cape Town, the West Coast had a lot of similarities. Um, but yes, there are some interesting um, socioeconomic and political overlap histories, which has been curious. Um, and I should say that a lot of American culture was familiar to me because I grew up watching American TV and movies and listening to American music. And so while sort of the South African world is very unfamiliar to the US, perhaps, um, I feel like I was watching the Cosby show and who's the boss and, you know, Sesame Street and uh, listening to new kids on the block, you know, child of the 80s. Um, and so a lot of those pop culture references, which people talk about, um, were a very easy transition for me. Mm. Did did when it's finally getting here, were you disappointed that we weren't the same as the America you saw on TV? <laughs> no, probably relieved. Everyone is so <laughs> beautiful and organized. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I would also say, especially, you know, now knowing the Cosby show, maybe, you know, obviously time reveals a, a lot of things, but, uh, um, right. you know, uh, you know, the reason I kind of asked that is, you know, for, for our ministers listening to the, the podcast conversation, a lot of people grew up in a particular culture. They may be trained to minister in the gospel in another particular culture, and then maybe have found themselves in a completely different context altogether, mm-hmm. um, when it comes to serving and living. So, you know, when it comes to kind of the the gospel work, which you are an ordained pastor, um, how, how did you find that transition worked in, in your life and in your ministry? Well, it's always interesting to visit churches elsewhere in the world because it reminds you that God is a bigger God uh, than um, you realized that uh, that the family of God is so much bigger, has multiple expressions, that you have cousins and brothers and sisters everywhere in the world. You just don't know their name yet. Um, and you you start to hold more loosely to some of the things that used to be the markers of orthodoxy. And I think uh, coming over here, I realized, oh, goodness, growing up, uh, my church in its defense of the truth and the faith often used to keep very um, sharp tabs on um, on the language that we used uh, and sort of our expressions of faith. These were our sort of internal markers of orthodoxy. We could tell that we were on the right track because we spoke of God in a certain way, because we worshipped in a certain way, or so we thought. Um, and I realized that every every community, every faith community, every cultural community kind of has these little markers and expressions that distinguish them from the crowd down the road or in the next town over. Um, and one of the things that moving cross-culturally does is it uh, makes you hold those things a little bit more loosely um, and not uh, police the language, perhaps. Um, but you also start looking for points of commonality. And I think that there's a sort of a culture shock process that you go through. Whoa, everything's different. And then you start looking for, oh, well, what's the same? And then in the years that follow, you start to think, okay, well, what is God's absolute truth in these things where I see discrepancies and what of those are cultural expressions of them, you know, different 
wisdoms, different sensitivities in trying to make my way through. And so in particular in the pastoral world, um, I did arrive in the States, um, landed up in a Baptist church and I was not raised in a Baptist church, did not go to a Baptist seminary, but landed up worshiping and then working in a Baptist church, which was much bigger than the church that I'd come from. Um, and had a more sort of business feel in the way the church was conducted as opposed to my very small shepherd feeling congregation that I'd come from. And so there were lots of things to think through. You know, yes, this is different, but is this different because this is American church versus South African? Is this different because it's a Baptist church as opposed to an Anglican one? Is this different because it's a very large church as opposed to a very small one? And there's sort of, um, you can't include everyone in the process if you have 500 people in the congregation. So figuring some of that stuff out took two or three years. And then, um, and this leads me to sort of the work that I've done more recently. Um, what are the stories that we have told about community and um, how we make disciples? Um, and how is that the same? And how is that different? And over the years began to realize, hmm, there are some very um, different and particularly American sensibilities, North American sensibilities about um what small groups and healthy community looks like, which were foreign to me. And it took me a while to figure out, uh, I think the Bible has something to say to this. This is not just a culturally jarring, this is um, biblically out of place. So talk to us a little bit more about your calling too, because you're actually, you're a lawyer too. So, you know, typically when I hear lawyer and religious leader, I think of, you know, the only cross-reference I have for that is the Pharisees and the, the gospel, which I, <laughs> you know, is like the worst possible, like, terminology to, you know, come up with. Not, not that they were the villains of the New Testament, but tell us a little bit about that. I mean, how, how you have this degree in practicing lawyer and also ordained minister. How does that all work together? So I went to law school um, very much fueled by a desire for justice, which was fueled by my faith. I, I was concerned for women and children. Um, taken advantage of, not well represented, and often um, abused and victimized in society. And I know that the scripture cares about that. Um, and it, it propelled me into law school. I um, graduated from law school pretty young um, and became quite disillusioned with lawyers in general, who often um, seem to, to do whatever it took to win the case but there were compromises that were ethically ambiguous to me and I was uneasy with that on, on how to handle that. And also my personal faith was growing during the period that I was an undergrad and then at college, um, our family went underwent some sort of significant trauma, which God really did use to show me a lot about himself and about the scriptures. And so even in my heart, he was reorienting me towards sort of some other concerns about um, community and pastoral care during that time, but finished up law school. Um, the dating relationship that I'd been in fell apart. And so my plans to marry and uh, have a great career all got reevaluated in a big shuffle. And so um, I decided to take a break and do college ministry for a while um, because the college ministry that I had been a part of through um, law school had been so formative and helpful to me in both my growth in the faith and in walking me through a tough time. Um, so landed up in ministry post-law school, really for, for personal reasons. And then while in ministry for that year, fully planning to go back and be a career person, God kind of tapped me on the shoulder through various leaders to say, um, maybe God has called you and gifted you for this. Have you considered? 
maybe studying further? Have you considered going to seminary? And at the, at the time that seemed shocking and actually kind of insulting to me to be uh, called out for, for further seminary study. Cause on the one hand I was like, come on people, I've done nothing but school for 20 years. <laughs> You're saying I should go back to school. Um, and also, are you saying that the ministry that I'm doing is not good enough unless I get your degree? I mean, I was all 20 and head up <laughs> so I had to, to calm down a bit. Um, but through sort of prayer and discernment and talking with elders, uh, I mean, I now realize so often we are not aware of our own gifts and we need others to help call, call them out. And I'm very grateful to various people who sat down with me and said, consider this, consider being uh, not just the, the person in the workplace, which is kind of where I had seen myself, but consider being an equipper of the church and an empowerer and a teacher of the church so that they can live well in the world. And so went back to Bible college, as we call it, or seminary here, and did the three years of training to be a pastor and was planning to do vocational ministry in South Africa. I was working with working women in the city ball in Cape Town, um, which I loved. And then, hey-ho, along comes a husband <laughs> who says, I want to do a PhD overseas. And so we moved to California and I said, well, Lord, now what? Now I have two degrees and uh, what do you want me to do now? And so just step by step, uh, we had plugged into the local church, our local Baptist church, and there was an opportunity in college ministry, and I'd done college ministry before. Um, so started serving there just as a volunteer, and then over time stepped into women's ministry, um, and now I'm on the pastoral staff of that church. So it's it's been an interesting journey along the way. So as I said in the intro, you're the editor for Propel Women. What can you tell us about this organization? So Propel started about five or six years ago and was born out of Christine Kane's um, deep conviction that we needed uh, great resources to equip and empower women to do ministry in the world. And there's been a lot of great women's ministry resources in the years um, that often have catered for women at home, uh, women and children, just in terms of schedule and in terms of life application and example, that were women in a certain demographic. Um, which is great. And those women need wonderful resources and good biblical teaching. But there's also a lot of women um, who belong to Jesus who are in the workplace, who work nine to five jobs, uh, who work Monday to Friday and can't come to a Tuesday morning Bible study, um, and who are trying to reach out to their co-workers and peers who have no church exposure whatsoever, and what resources were there for them. And so Propel uh, started um, with little conversation series. I mean, Christina is at her heart an evangelist, wants to see people one for Jesus. And so it was a women's ministry designed by an evangelist to equip churches to reach people around them uh, when they were working. Um, and they have small group curriculum over, they've developed some fall conferences, although we'll see what those look like in an age of COVID. Um, and then two years ago, I got connected with Christine when I was uh, interviewing her for something else. We got chatting and um, we were talking about the need for wisdom resources. There's so many people in our life who want to tell us what to do, tell us the conclusions we should come to, but there is not always a lot of people who will walk us through the process of um, how to figure out our ethical muscle as Christians. How do we reason from the scriptures when a situation seems confusing, where there's different conflicting information. And so we developed Propel Sophia, which is the, the branch of the online resource that I'm the editor and curator for, 
um, to give worked examples of people living their faith. People saying, I have this question about a friend who's always flaking on me, or I have this question about whether I can ask for a raise, or I have this particular question about using my time. This is a real practical question. How does the word of God help me to put boots on in this situation and think it through? So we weren't telling people the conclusion we, we wanted them to come to, but we want to show wise women um, using the scriptures in their everyday life. And we've been doing that for two years. And I love this resource. It's just great to work with so many women who are um, sincerely wanting to serve Jesus in their context. I just learned so much from them. Hmm. Where would you point people to, uh, to how they can find out more and, and how they can get involved with the organization? Uh, propelwomen.org. We're online. Yeah, we're online and you can find out about uh, further study and small groups and curriculum and leadership training. And um, there are a bunch of articles. Uh, the Propel Sophia ones are the ones under my purview. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. Now, you've got a new book out, Beyond Awkward Side Hugs, Living as Christian Brothers and Sisters in a Sex-Crazed World. Um, What was the inspiration for this book? (laughs) Oh, my book about hugs in an age when no one can touch. Yes, I love this book. Um, What was the inspiration for it? I think um, this book was born out of many, many years of me doing freelance writing and publishers and people saying to me, do you have any book ideas? And me saying, no, not really. Um, but then when pressed on it, I thought, well, what do I find I keep on talking about? What do people keep on writing to me to ask questions about? What do people keep on texting me and saying, hey, I have a question that I'm trying to think my way through as a Christian. Can I come and have a cup of coffee or take a walk with you and talk? And in people's life of discipleship, in my years in college ministry, women's ministry and pastoral ministry, so many people's uh, stuck points have to do with how do how to do relationships and how to do church. How do they do dating? How do they navigate loneliness? How do they navigate uh, friendship and small group dynamics? And realized, gosh, I am all about the gospel and all about community and all about healthy church. But the the warp and the weft of that, the fabric of that conversation is so often about how we think about our relationships with the men and women around us. And over the years, I'm finding I keep talking about this. And I'm finding that the questions that people come to me with are often um, just so cautious. People are so afraid of getting it wrong and so afraid of um, abuse and affairs uh, that they don't even know where to start. We just, we've heard a whole lot about what we're not supposed to do, but we haven't heard about how we do it. How do we think about the men and women around us? How do we go about having friendships? And I thought, Actually, I'm con- I, scripture has spoken to me about this. I'm very persuaded that there's something very obvious in scripture 
about how we live out our identity as brothers and sisters that can help us in this conversation. And so the next time someone said, do you have a book idea? I said, well, this is a conversation I've been having with a lot of people. Uh, what do you think? And they said, yep, that's a book. Write us a proposal. So it turned into a proposal from me. Again, I needed other people to help call that out. Hmm. I guess it is always nice that people are asking you to write books. You know, it means, <laughs> it means people are reading and, and listening your work. So you use the term uh, sex crazed world often in the book. You wrote, our society is hypersexualized. Uh, excessively concerned with sexual possibilities in every interaction. And while I, I'm, I'm not stating I agree or disagree with your assessment uh, with this question, but but what do you, wh why do you think we live in such a sex-crazed world? Well, as I, um, as I was reading and researching this, the more that I read about it, the more I began to notice around me, you know, like my attention was drawn to it. And I was like, oh, yes, that really is true. That, that, <laughs> that this is what's going on. Um, but began to just notice the, the long lasting impact of um, Freud and this very sexualized, romanticized world we live in, where the plot of the shows we watch, the movies we watch, the songs we listen to, um, whenever it's about a man and a woman, it's about the possibility of some kind of sexual spark and chemistry between them. Either that's what we're cheering for, that's going to be the season finale, or they're going to ride off into the sunset at the end of the movie, um, or that's what we're really afraid of. You know, there's a, there's a predator or there's an affair waiting to happen. But either way, this presumption that men and women, when they get together, are always some explosive combination of sexual, sexual chemistry. Um, just became so obvious to me that that was um, underlying so many of the jokes, so much of the narrative uh, outside of the church and also inside of the church. And I had not, until I read Jonathan Grant's book, Divine Sex, um, really paused to say, is that true? Is it really true that I believe that any man and any woman together is always an explosive and dangerous combination? And is that what scripture says? Um, and is that what God wants for us? And the more I thought about it, I thought, no, that is not. That is not the way that scripture speaks about love or community. Um, that's not the way that scripture speaks about maleness and femaleness. Yes, that aspect is true, but it's not the whole. So as we consider this conversation, you know, where does God fit into sexuality? We are, in fact, creatures of a God that created us. With sexual organs and desire. So, so how does God fit into this conversation about sexuality? Oh, I love that question. Um, I think it's so important for us to reclaim the fact that God created sexuality. God created men and women, male and female, and he declared it good. That God is not embarrassed um, about sexuality. He's not embarrassed about bodies. Um, there's no shame involved in being male or female in the scripture. That is, that is God's good gift, right? Um, and I think it's important to, to state that and affirm that because I think particularly, and this started for me when I was a teenager, uh, you, you sort of go through puberty and you're experiencing hormones and all of a sudden um, there's just all of these messages that make you feel awkward in your own body. You don't even know how to handle yourself, much less the person sitting next to you. And I could have used God saying, uh, someone pointing out to me that in the scriptures, Jesus grew up, he went through puberty. 
that God created our bodies and these feelings we're having are normal. And we don't have to suppress or deny that. We need to steward the feelings that we're having um, and point to some healthy role models. There are healthy role models in scripture. There are healthy role models in church history um, of people who have handled their maleness and femaleness well, not just as something to be avoided until your wedding day when you flick a switch. Um, it's, it's not true that we are kind of just androgynous people until we come of age and become sexually active. No, we need a theology of maleness and femaleness, which correlates better to scripture. That that's something that God made us from the moment he began to knit us together in our mother's wombs and something we carry into eternity. We will be male and female, you know, forever in his presence, regardless of our uh, marital status, regardless of our sexual activity, we are male and female. And, uh, we can delight in that. Of course, you know, centered around your book, it doesn't necessarily open up for for this conversation, so we don't have to have it now. But, you know, the church certainly, as it talks about gender fluidity and um, how it thinks about that theologically is, is certainly another conversation for for another time. Um, but, but growing up in the evangelical movement, I was reared on the true love waits uh, <laughs> Uh, I guess the was the word crusade. And I, in fact, had a purity ring that I got during a ceremony of promising that I would stay sexually pure until I was married. You know, the evangelical movement has invested an awful lot of stock in training teenagers to believe that suppressing one's sexual feelings is the best way to stay religiously pure. So I wonder if you might talk to us a little bit about you know, has the evangelical church taken the wrong route when it comes to talking about sexuality? Um, you know, and if it has, how does the church take a more direct approach to talking about sex and sexuality and dating and all these things? Well, I'm, uh, first of all, that purity ring is, um, is an artifact and you should keep it because <laughs> that, that marks a period in history, doesn't it? Um, also, just curiously on that, I'm I'm so interested that people talk about staying sexually pure until they get married. I think sexual purity is something we're called to throughout our lives after we get married. You know, like that's it's not just something to tide you over. <laughs> uh, our conversation about sexual stewardship and faithfulness is is not just for um, uh, hormonal people in their late teens. It's for everybody. Um, but to answer sort of the more the more broad question, I um, I had a little bit of purity culture growing up, even in South Africa, um, with True Love's Weights material finding its way to me. Um, and there is a lot to be said for the fact that God created uh, sex to belong in marriage. Um, I think the scriptures are clear um, on that. But the question of sexuality is broader than the question of sex. Because I am male and I am female. We are male and female. I am female in all the contexts of my life, not just in the bedroom with my husband. And there was no conversation uh, that I had heard as a teenager or as a young woman about what it meant to be a woman if I wasn't a wife or a mother or, you know, playing the role of the daughter of Solomon, you know, the daughters of Jerusalem in the Song of Solomon. Um, whenever people talked about sexuality, they uh, like ran ahead to just talking about sex and marriage. But there was very little conversation about uh, being a woman in everyday relationship. And I actually had a lot of questions about that. Because what if I wasn't dating? And what about my relationship 
with all the other guys around me, even if I was dating or was married, just the vast amount of my interactions in life are with people to whom I'm not in a romantic or sexual relationship. And there was just no language for what, or thinking about what it meant to be like a woman in my own skin, you know, with my body in all of those situations. And that's where there was a gap. And this is where I think scripture's language of being um, brothers and sisters is so helpful because it's gendered. It actually acknowledges that I'm um, not just a person in the congregation, but I'm a woman, I'm a sister. Um, but it gives me lots of pathways for relationship, for loving people in non-eros ways, for expressing, you know, friendship love, phileo, or ex expressing um, like a kinship connection of storge love or the agape love that we're called to one another in a way that acknowledges my gender because I'm a woman, um, but doesn't, doesn't have to make it all sexy. And I, I really hope that one of the things that comes out of the conversation about this book is that we start to see that God's picture of sexuality is so much bigger than just a worrying about people's sex. I think you said something earlier that kind of um, rings true. I think of where the church has erred in talking about sexuality is, you know, it's all around this purity conversation before marriage, but then honestly, it's like after that, it's just like, leave it up to couples of any nature to figure this all out together. And I think that's where you, people start to develop maybe even a conversation around um, sexually abusive relationships and how, uh, you know, the objectification of a certain gender uh, within a marriage uh, leads to, to many of those things. Um, you know, it, that, you know, is related also to, as you talked about, kind of a sex crazed culture. Um, I wonder if you might talk to us a little bit about how the Me Too movement has affected the way that you approach this conversation, this book, when it comes to to dating and relationships and sexuality. Uh, sure. You know, it, it was stories that started to come out with um, the Me Too movement and Church Too movement. I mean, these were these were the things that drove me to law school in the first place, right? Stories of women. Um, and children really taken advantage of in situations and um, their stories not being believed or not being heard and then nothing being done about it because of the existing power structures. I mean, that has just always filled me with um, a holy anger and I believe it breaks God's heart too. That's just not the way um, that it's meant to be. Um, and I also acknowledge that the response of so many people, and I've been one of the people who've done this, um, on being part of church communities that have done this is that we are so then afraid of bad things happening that we just, we legislate against it. We just try and keep everybody safe. You know, the best way for abuse not to happen then is never to have people in a room together, never to have men and women um, being the same. And I understand that impulse to, to try and um, make things as safe as possible. But the problem is, is that it doesn't work. It doesn't work in the long run. You know, evil will find a way regardless of the rules. You know, we cheat on our own New Year's resolutions within a week. We all know the deceptive qualities of, um, of the heart and having rules, even best rules, uh, don't take care of sin issues. And I think this is what Romans is talking about, you know, when it says that the law has its limits about what it can do. We need the spirit. We need the internal work of um, change and character. And that's true in areas of sexuality as well. So the Me Too movement, you know, 
highlights all of this, all of the ways that things can go wrong. And our knee-jerk reaction often is, oh my goodness, we just need stronger boundaries and firmer limits. And there is a place for uh, responding and um, addressing that and thinking, rethinking our boundaries. For example, my church decided to uh, replace all of the doors in our office with glass doors as a response to the Me Too and Church Too movement, um, just to, to honor everybody, to keep, to keep things literally transparent. Um, but is the answer then never to have men and women in a small group together, just in case? And I would say to that, no, the answer is no. Because, um, you know, if, let, let's say we manage to keep all the rules, right? We never have sex before we get married, and then you manage to um, live your entire rest of your life without having an affair. Does that mean that you succeeded in loving well and building a great community and uh, living living your life as the man and woman God has intended, does avoiding those two dangerous situations, does avoiding abuse or avoiding an affair mean that you did uh, well in love? No, it doesn't. That's actually a really low bar. Just because you didn't have an affair doesn't mean that you loved your wife well. You, you see what I'm saying? Like, that's a really, really minimal bar. It would be a terrible betrayal of love if you had an affair, but just having uh, avoided the pitfalls doesn't mean you lived into the fullness of what God has called us to. And so my my feeling at a macro level on the church is um, just because we gave people a whole bunch of rules about what to avoid because we were afraid that things go wrong, what have we missed? I think we've missed um, a whole bunch of opportunities for us to do what Jesus called us to do, which was to let the world know that we were Christians by our love, to consider um, others better than ourselves, to use our gifts for the benefit of the whole body. Um, and if we keep on siloing people into different uh, gender groups and demographics for fear of going things wrong, we're actually missing part of the vision of community that God has laid out for us. So what do you think is the most uh, difficult challenge for the church and Jesus followers when it comes to this conversation? What is the role um, when it comes to discipleship and all of these endeavors? Um, I think that's part of the work of discipleship that we need to figure out in our own communities because um, because cultures vary and church cultures vary. And, you know, in some, in some churches, men and women have been working and worshiping alongside one another for a long time. And so their challenges would be different from churches that haven't had men and, you know, married men and women in the same room for a really long time. But I would say that the big theological challenge is for us to think through practically how we express the truth that we are the family of God. That's just an oversight. I think it's something we pay lip service to, but I don't know that we've done a lot of like deep thinking on it. And I, I use as an example for this, um, we've, we've had a lot of literature written in the last 20 years about what it means to live as a child of God. The Bible says that we're children of God. We know we're children of God. But so often our, our practice, our lived experience is that we live as if we're rejected or live as if we're under judgment or live as if we're having to earn our way back to him. And so learning to live and really express in our life and worship and practices that we really are the children of God is that takes some work. It takes some thinking about identifying the ways we're 
you know, living as a servant or living as a son, right? And learning to live, uh, if we're all children of God, then we're actually siblings of one another. And uh, I think we paid lip service to the fact that we're the family of God, but in practice, uh, we live as if the nuclear family is the main definition of family. But Jesus challenged us to, to look at his definition of family, at who he called his mothers and brothers and fathers, um, to honor highly the family of God. And I think our big challenge uh, from a praxis and prayer point of view is for us to think, how can my church community uh, live more as the brothers and sisters that God says we are? Not just loosely connected fam nuclear families, but actually expressing this so that the single people in my community and the widows in my community and the children in my community all feel that sense of belonging. I think that's something that we have um, in common as a challenge. Hmm. As you think about uh, local churches as they begin to to use this book, you know, how do you imagine them using it as a resource? You know, I very, um, very carefully wanted to write this book for the everyday Christian. Um, I did not write it uh, in an academic way for people who are used to reading commentaries. You know, those are my people, right? I, I'm, I'm a Bible nerd. I like to read commentaries. <laughs> um, I can read academic register, but I didn't want to write a book to uh, people in my space. I wanted to write a book for all the people that come and sit in my kitchen with a real everyday question. How do I do this relationship with someone in my office? Um, how do I handle this friendship? How do I handle this dating relationship? So I am hoping that the book will find its way into the hands of many everyday Christians who will feel um, addressed and heard and spoken to and helped in a practical way, but that they will also be able to very clearly see the biblical foundations and scaffolding for that conversation. So it's not a sermon in tone, it's conversational in tone, but I did try to show where this is grounded in the scripture. Having said that, the way most people find a book, um, if it's a nonfiction Christian book, is because it's recommended by someone that they trust in their leadership. So um, I'm imagining that there, there would need to be engagement from Christian leaders. Um, and they have a responsibility, I have a responsibility as one of the pastors in my church, just to think about uh, whatever it is I'm doing, whether I'm teaching or preaching or setting up small groups or um, hosting events, how am I um, how am I helping the family that God has uh, given to me that He has made me part of in this? And just that family mindset is slowly shaping the language that I use as a leader, um, the way we issue invitations, the way we pray, um, and and I do think that there's a trickle down effect to uh, the people in my small group and pews who uh, always knew perhaps that the people in their group were um, brothers and sisters in Christ, but we're being challenged to think about what that looks like. And I'm get, I'm beginning to get letters from readers saying, thanks, this, this helped. And that was who I, that was who I wrote for. I wrote it for the everyday Christian who's trying to figure out what it means to be a faithful man or woman of God uh, in the world as they engage in everyday life in church. Well, the conversation itself centered around this book is difficult, but but for you personally, what was the most challenging aspect of of researching and writing for this? Um, 
The most challenging aspect was trying to figure out the, the voice <laughs> so that I wasn't being preachy, uh, but I didn't just want to write a book of opinion. I wanted to try and find a balance um, between um, explaining my biblical convictions, but in a way that was accessible. So that was the hardest part of a write, as a, from a writing point of view. I think from a relational and personal point of view, um, how to include real stories in a way that honors, honors other people's journeys and particularly my immediate family's um, journey well. You know, I write as a married person um, and a mother of children and uh, my nuclear family is all very involved in the real life that we live in church, which I reference with honesty and openness and transparency in the book. But their story is also not mine to tell. And so I wanted to be very honoring of my husband and my kids, the people in my small group of my church family. Um, so figuring out how I could write honestly, but without exposing anybody, um, I, I prayed a lot about that as I was writing. You know, I know there's a lot of hopes that you hope your readers will get out of this, but um, you know, what was the biggest insight or biggest reward you got out of writing it? I got excited the more that I was writing. Um, oh my gosh, I can't help but smile as I think about this. You know, I think when I started writing, I had a little bit of a, a bee in my bonnet. I don't know if people use that expression here, but I was just a little bit annoyed, I think, at how many people had just got such bad advice or such incomplete advice in their Christian faith. And there was sort of like a, a, a zeal or just um, a jealousy on their behalf or gosh, I wish, I wish you'd had more helpers or, you know, I was, I was frustrated on behalf of, of, of so many Christians who had just had a dearth of good teaching on this. So I, I started writing the book out of annoyance, <laughs> but the more that I wrote, the more I just became captivated by the fact that God has called us to be his family. He's called us to be his sons and daughters, and he's called us to be brothers and sisters to one another. And that is a beautiful thing. He has invited the lonely and the outcast to belong to a family that's going to last forever. And as I look around me at a world where um, people have their sexuality denied, uh, who uh, feel that they and their questions and their bodies and their feelings or their hormones or their relationships are that their questions are not welcome or that they are not welcome. I thought, no, that's just the father welcomes all of his sons and daughters. He welcomes this conversation. There is a place for everybody to belong. And um, I hope that people will be excited about community about the family of God. I hope that they will increasingly feel, gosh, I not only have permission to love the people around me, um, I am commissioned to love the people around me well and to invite people into this family. And so by the time I finished writing, I was just um, so encouraged by what God has for us. So again, it always feels weird to ask an author this, like, hey, you just wrote a book. What else do you have going on? But what else do you have going on that we should be aware of? That you should be aware of. Um, I have a fiction book coming out later this year, a novel about early motherhood. Um, so if you follow me on social media, at some point I will make an announcement with a cover reveal later this year. Um, but my book is still, you know, no one was reading during the pandemic, certainly not books about hugs, 
So I am still hoping we will see some really good conversation, um, not because I want people to like my book, but because I want people to love their communities. And I hope that this book is a gift and an aid to that. So I am really hoping to continue to serve that conversation well in the coming months. Well, I would say considering for three months, we were told not to touch anybody outside of our family. It might be the time for people to pick up your book and to read <laughs> so that when they go out, they keep their hands to themselves. So, <laughs> Yes. And I mean, the one, the one great gift of um, a pandemic, like um, a, no a no touching pandemic, um, is that it immediately highlights that this is not a book about um, hugs. It's actually not a book about public displays of affection. The title is one way of referencing the bigger issue, which remains pandemic or no. And that is um, how do we live well with the men and women around us? And whether we are hugging or fist bumping or waving from six feet, whether we are writing letters, the question still of how we stay connected as a family whether we're on Zoom or whether in person, remains. And the theology of being brothers and sisters is such a beacon of light in that conversation, regardless of how the cultural expression looks. Hmm. Well, if you want to stay connected with Bronwyn, check out her website, bronlee.com. Um, we were talking about pre-recording that there's a poet who owns your name and the website associated with it. So go to bronlee.com or follow her on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Of course, go out and purchase Beyond Awkward Side Hugs wherever books are sold. Um, Bronwyn, thank you for uh, taking on this very challenging conversation as well as your willingness to share your calling with us. It has been such an honor to be with you. Thanks so much, Andy. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in the